A warm welcome to First Move and a packed show for you today. As always, we're standing by for some breaking news from Asia. A plane carrying U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expected to touch down soon in Taiwan. Pelosi set to become the highest ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in a quarter of a century. China warning that the U.S. will, quote, pay the price if the visit goes ahead. Russia calling the visit pure provocation. We'll take you live to Taipei, Beijing and Washington, D.C. for the latest on that. Also, this Tuesday, too, reaction to the U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan that killed the world's most wanted terrorist, al-Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks more than 20 years ago. But first, uncertainty over Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan trip and the impact on already tense U.S.-China relations triggering what we can see there, a pullback in Asian stock markets today with China and Hong Kong closing down more than 2 percent. U.S. futures and Europe under a bit of pressure, too. I can show you that, but I call that resilience in the face of deep uncertainty over the rift between two of the world's superpowers. As you can see, Nasdaq futures down almost 1 percent. This follows a softer start to August trading on Monday to a risk-off day across many asset classes, in fact, with global bond yields pulling back. Oil, however, a touch higher ahead of tomorrow's closely watched OPEC meeting. Tight OPEC supply and energy uncertainties resulting from the war in Ukraine mean record quarterly earnings for some of those oil majors. The UK's BP, the latest, reporting its highest profits in 14 years, a Q2 haul of almost $8.5 billion. That's more than triple last year's results. Those shares, as you would expect, up 3% in UK trade. Later in the show, an exclusive interview coming up with the Lithuanian president on NATO's response to Russia attacking Ukraine, as well as Eastern Europe's relations with China. But first, US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expected to land in Taiwan tonight. Despite warnings from China and from officials in the Biden administration, she will be the most senior U.S. figure to visit the island in 25 years and comes, as we've discussed, as relations between the U.S. and China are at a critically low point. Will Ripley joins us now from Taipei. Will, huge anticipation, also uncertainty over quite when the House Speaker is expected to land. A very broad window given, plenty of uncertainty, and I think that points to um, how contentious overall this visit is and will be. Let's make a bet, Julia. I'm going to guess within the next 90 minutes from now. Uh, I don't know what you want to bet. I don't know what I could even what I could even award you other than maybe some more information about Pelosi's trip because it has been in such short supply, official information anyway. This is the trip that everybody had, the stop on Pelosi's Asia trip that everybody's talking about. And yet it's never been put on the official calendar. Um, here in Taiwan, one of the most transparent governments uh, that I've ever covered, they have been very uh, uncharacteristically quiet today, whether it's the Ministry of Defense or the Foreign Ministry. The only people who are actually publicly saying anything on social media uh, would be you know, people who used to work for the government, like the president's uh, former spokesperson, Kola Shitaka, who put out a tweet saying that Pelosi should be allowed to visit and shouldn't feel threatened because she wants to visit Taiwan. Uh, you know, also saying that the Taiwanese people feel less isolated, frankly, uh, when people from other countries come here to learn about uh, their way of life because the, you know, the government, the communist rulers in Beijing essentially have been working very hard to isolate Taiwan diplomatically as much as possible. So even though they don't have a formal diplomatic relationship with a lot of these powerful democracies, they do have friendships with these countries. And Pelosi, as the second in line to the U.S. presidency, just after the vice president, uh, you know, if there was ever anything to happen to President Biden, I mean, she is an incredibly high profile figure, the highest level U.S. official that has uh, visited this island 
since Newt Gingrich back in 97. So it's been a quarter century. And uh, this is a really, really important moment, probably for her political career. Let's be honest. You know, she might not be House Speaker uh, forever, certainly. Um, but also for the Taiwan's government to even if they can't publicly uh, express, uh, you know, you know, gratitude for the for the visit or support for the visit. Uh, you know, President Tsai Ing-wen undoubtedly will probably be meeting with her. I'm sure she'll be meeting with some lawmakers in terms of the rest of her schedule, how long she's going to be on the ground here, what other meetings she might take, what other sites she might visit, because we just don't have anything official. It's a lot of guesswork and a lot of passing around possibilities. And then you just got to get out there and, and try to figure out where she's going to where she's going to be, where, where she's going to spend the night, uh, which hotels she'll be at. Um, so we're looking at the airport very closely for that U.S. military plane to see when it lands. And we're also looking very closely at what the response is going to be from mainland China. So far, it has been, I would say, pretty muted response. Even the, the propaganda video that was put out, they, you know, they put out propaganda videos about, you know, special military operations targeting Taiwan independence before a propaganda video showing planes and tanks and everything. That's one thing. An actual buildup of weapons or a buildup in the Taiwan Strait would be something very different altogether. And that's definitely not something that we're seeing right now. And, and we're not expecting to see that uh, because Xi Jinping is looking for a stable next few months as he tries to coast in and get that unprecedented third term at a party Congress. Um, is he happy that a high level U.S. official is landing on an island that he believes in his heart is part of, you know, his territory, his country's territory, so much so that China even puts Taiwan as a page in their passport as a province. Taiwan that has had its own government and its own military for more than 70 years. And Beijing's communist rulers still claim this place and have said, Julia, they'll take it back by force if they need to. Uh, but it's not very likely going to start uh, with Nancy Pelosi's visit here. It's uh, this is something that they're you know, people are looking at analysts looking at China's motivations, their military build, military expansion down the road. People, a lot of people believe it is a matter of when China does it, not if. Mm. But as you point out, um, not as a consequence of this, but it does um, come at a very difficult, delicate time, both for President Biden and, of course, for President Xi, yes. too. And uh, the bet I will take with you is perhaps, well, if this does happen, as we expect it to, then um, not much sleep for you tonight. And uh, thank you for joining us on that. <laughs> yeah. All eyes will be on China, as uh, Will was mentioning there in the coming hours and its reaction to the speaker's visit. Selena Wang is in Beijing for us. Selena, not only how the Chinese government chooses to respond, given already fiery rhetoric as a result of this, but also how the Chinese people choose to respond, because there's been plenty of vitriol on some of the biggest social media platforms in, in China, too. Yeah, Julie, we've seen a lot of propaganda actually whipping up this nationalism. So we have seen this Pelosi trip, potential Pelosi trip that's happening any moment now. It has been trending across social media platforms on China. And the threats we're hearing from Beijing, that's as much directed to the domestic audience as it is to the international audience, because Xi Jinping cannot look weak at this moment. There have even been some concern from experts that Xi Jinping might take an overreaction as a way to distract from all of the problems at home when you have the economy devastated by the pandemic. You have continuing lockdowns, snap lockdowns because of zero COVID. So we we are hearing this extremely fiery rhetoric that is playing into this nationalism that Xi Jinping wants, especially leading up into this party Congress. But at the same time, this is rhetoric that we've heard before. The problem is it is starting to reach a fever pitch. It is starting to get to a point where even a lot of Chinese people on social media are pointing out that at this point, China can't really back down with 
without losing face. So the question really is, is what China does in a way that saves face, shows that China isn't just a paper tiger, but also at the same time prevents this from all spiraling into a risky escalation. Destroyers open fire. Missiles launch. Warships shoot into the sea. It's a show of force ahead of China's military anniversary, training for war in the East China and Yellow Seas. Soldiers also recently ran drills around Pingtan Island, China's closest point to Taiwan, just over 77 miles away, renewing fears of a cross-strait crisis, triggered by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to the island. Good morning. In a call with President Joe Biden last week, Chinese leader Xi Jinping warned, those who play with fire will perish by it. A prominent hawkish voice in China even suggested that if U.S. fighter jets escort Pelosi's plane into Taiwan, China's military should forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane. If ineffective, then shoot them down. The tweet has now been banned. He doesn't represent the official government stance, but state media had been promoting his threat. It's not just that Pelosi is the most powerful U.S. official to visit in 25 years, but Beijing also sees her as a hostile figure. She's been a staunch critic of China for decades. In 1991, two years after China's military brutally cracked down on student protesters around Tiananmen Square, Pelosi traveled there and held a banner that read, to those who died for democracy in China. U.S. President Joe Biden has raised concerns over Pelosi's trip. The military thinks it's not a good idea right now. This Chinese state media video says Pelosi is only going to Taiwan to boost her political career and that America's fragmented government cannot agree on what to do about Taiwan. Neither side can afford to look weak. If Pelosi didn't go, it could look like the U.S. is caving to China's bullying. Whereas Xi Jinping is just months away from a key political meeting where he's expected to seek an unprecedented third term. Given the overreaching that Xi Jinping has been doing, I don't believe we can count on his good judgment. For now, he's keeping the world guessing as to whether the threats are just bluffing or if Beijing is actually ready for a crisis that could escalate into a war that no one wants. And look, both sides don't want to look weak, but at the same time, neither side wants a conflict. So as we look for this possible China reaction, it could include things like flying more warplanes into China's air defense zone, which China already regularly does. It could also include economic and diplomatic backlash. But as we wait for this meeting and we look out for that response, we'll have to, Xi Jinping has to calculate very carefully how to minimize the risk that as you have more of this hardware, military hardware in the region, how you try to minimize the risk of an accident or a miscalculation that could lead to a real conflict. There was, of course, a House Speaker who had gone to Taiwan 25 years ago, but the China of today is far more powerful in every regard, economically, militarily. And of course, Xi Jinping is the most powerful leader China has had in decades, Julia. Yes, and you raise a very important question uh, at the heart of this, Taiwan. How does this help Taiwan, if that's what the aim is? Selena Wang, thank you for that. We shall await. Okay, on to a major news, other news story now. The Al-Qaeda leader removed. A U.S. drone strike successfully targeted Ayman al-Zawahiri in his safe house in Kabul, Afghanistan. President Biden saying justice had been delivered. 
We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us now. Nick, among the messages sent here by the United States that they may have pulled out of Afghanistan, but they're still capable of seeking and killing the nation's enemies. Also big questions for the Taliban, what they knew and, and who they're harboring, who else they may be harboring. Yeah, look, I mean, there's very little doubt that can be had here that somebody of Zawahiri's importance, the leader of al-Qaeda, would be finding himself able to hide out in a neighbourhood like that in Kabul without some pretty senior Taliban knowing about it. That could be the Haqqani network, who've always been accused of being close to al-Qaeda. But, you know, this would have happened with the acquiescence of certainly some Taliban officials. So it's an immediate question to the Taliban to explain essentially the promises made in the Doha agreement that foreigners would not be allowed uh, to take up residence in Afghanistan in terms of uh, extremism and that there were no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan either. I mean, frankly, realists thought that this was something that was quite likely to happen once the United States left. On a simple note for the United States, though, after the abject humiliation, frankly, of August last year, where they were forced to leave Afghanistan under very difficult circumstances, uh, this is a remarkable uh, strike, frankly, to find uh, the most wanted man in the world on a balcony in a city that you've not had boots on the ground in properly uh, for over a year uh, and to conduct an operation that seems with this kind of precision, with that kind of confidence. I think it shows quite how fast counterterrorism has developed over the last two decades. And the new era, frankly, that we're in, where in ISIS's case, they seem to uh, have a little time to put their new leader in place before he's again killed by the Americans. So great advances by the United States, certainly, but also the old Taliban who sheltered at al-Qaeda before 9-11, clearly doing that again. Yeah, big questions to your point over the Doha agreement and the future of that. Nick, great to have your context as always. Thank you. Nick Payton-Walsh there. Okay, straight ahead. NATO needs to do more, says Lithuania. The president speaks to us about his recent visit to Ukraine and cyber attacks, congestion and China. The Port of Los Angeles chief on supply chain strain. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, a cautious day across global markets amid escalating rhetoric from Beijing over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's expected visit to Taiwan. U.S. futures are softer amid the rising geopolitical uncertainties that I'd call that resilient after closing a touch lower on Monday. Nancy Pelosi's jet reportedly en route to Taipei at this hour. And China, of course, threatening retaliatory action. We'll be bringing you a live update on the situation in just a few moments' time. But another country that understands the sensitivity of relations over Taiwan is Lithuania. In November last year, it became the first European country to allow self-ruled Taiwan to open a de facto embassy under the name Taiwan rather than Taipei. The move infuriated the government in Beijing, which saw it as a direct challenge to the One China principle that insists Taiwan remains part of China. Lithuania's stance over Taiwan may also be a message to Moscow. The Baltic nation, which shares a border with Poland, has long warned that Russia is a threat, calling on Joe Biden to increase America's military presence on NATO's eastern flank. Last month, Lithuania's president, Gitanas Noseda, said he doesn't believe NATO is doing enough to help Ukraine and admitted that his own country is unprepared for a Russian invasion. And Lithuanian president, Gitanas Noseda, joins us now. 
President Naseda, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you. We have much to discuss, but I do want to just get your thoughts on the situation over Taiwan at this moment. Do you understand why China is arguing that this is provocation? And do you believe it's right that the trip goes ahead to, so that it doesn't look as if that threat from China is being heard? Uh, first of all, I would like to correct uh, a little bit your statement because we didn't challenge uh, one China policy. We just established, or uh, in Lithuania, there was established Taiwanese representative office, which is not a uh, diplomatic uh, representation. This is just a trade, uh, economically targeted, uh, oriented organization, entity. And, uh, of course, the reaction of, uh, uh, by Chinese authorities was uh, exaggerated and uh, we have some consequences. But we defend our right to choose the countries, the regions we would like to establish economic, social, cultural relations. And Taiwan is one of them. I understand. And I also hear your correction, sir. But I'll repeat that it was... China's sense that this was in some way contravening the uh, one China principle. I appreciate your point that, as you said, it isn't. Um, But to today's events and what we're seeing currently, it's a delicate moment for the global economy. It's a delicate moment for President Xi ahead of the party congress later this year. Do you think this visit helps Taiwan ultimately? You know, it's uh, very important uh, to defend some rules uh, and rule-based order in uh, in the world. And uh, sometimes the principles and values are even more important than economic interests. So this is the reason why why I think we should defend those values not only in in front of events in China, but also having in mind the war in Ukraine. Because sometimes I get the impression that we get tired uh, gradually from the war in Ukraine and uh, the attention uh, to the war in Ukraine could be uh, reduced in the future. And it would be the worst mistake we could make uh, because Russia would very welcome some such trend and probably will try to occupy even a bigger part, uh, larger part of Ukraine. So we have to keep in mind and in the center of our attention all these events, not only what is happening in Taiwan or the relations of uh, United States with Taiwan and other countries with Taiwan, but also the war in Ukraine. And this is the issue I would like to uh, discuss with you in more detailed way. Let's please do so, sir. I know you just came back. The First Lady of Lithuania went with you. You were both in Ukraine. And your message coming back was that NATO needs to do more. I know you directly appealed to to President Biden and said that the eastern flank of NATO also needs strengthening and there can't be gaps. Have you had a response? And and to your point about some exhaustion setting in, do you feel that that's what's happening here, that, that, that NATO needs to not get tired and needs to continue to provide more, not less? 
Yes, uh, we, by the way, we are celebrating 100 years uh, anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between United States uh, and uh, Lithuania. And uh, on this occasion, together with uh, all presidents, uh, other presidents of Baltic countries, Latvian and Estonian presidents, we sent the common letter to uh, to uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden, and uh, one of the key elements of this letter was attention we have to pay to the uh, security of eastern flank of NATO. Yes, we are very satisfied with the result uh, which was achieved in the moderate uh, NATO summit. Uh, forward uh, defense principle also, except, exception of uh, Sweden and Finland uh, uh, as a members uh, in NATO. Also, a very clear statement on Russia as a long-term threat to NATO. All these uh, issues uh, were very important to uh, Baltic countries, but we have to do more. And first of all, to do more in practical sense. Declarations are important. Declarations send very important signals to international community. But unfortunately, this is not enough. And we have to implement the declarations. And one of the principles or one of the key elements is that we need more, how to say, boots on ground in the Baltic states. It means that we need more forward presence uh, of uh, NATO allies. Uh, and as you know, the leading country of EFP in Lithuania is Germany. Germany took the responsibility to uh, scale up the forward presence in Lithuania up to brigade size level. And we hope very much that uh, our a largest ally in NATO, United States, will contribute to our security and the security of the whole region uh, even more. You've been taking measures and, and pushing Parliament to try and do more. You were trying to raise defence spending to 3%. I believe it went to 2.5% of the budget. You also were talking about perhaps introducing conscription. It didn't happen. What threat are you seeing perhaps that some of those parliamentary members aren't? Because you've said we're not prepared for, for a Russian invasion. Do you believe that's a possibility that even being a member of NATO doesn't protect you enough? We strongly believe in the Article 5 and uh, it was many times repeated and mentioned by the highest uh, officials uh, of NATO allies that it's a sacred sanct and uh, this is rockets uh, uh, solid and so on. But of course we understand very well, very well that we need to do more. Uh, first of all, we have to do our homework. This was the reason why we increased in one step the defense spending up to 2.5% of our GDP in this year. And we have still ambition to do more and to increase the spending maybe up to 3% of GDP in the nearest years. So I would say that there is broad political consensus in my country and in neighboring countries because we understand very well that we need to do more ourselves. And uh, because of many reasons, first of all, we talk about modernization of our military troops. 
uh, and uh, the second reason, uh, in order to accommodate and to receive the uh, forward troops in Lithuania, and as I mentioned, we need a larger number of troops, more equipment, uh, uh, for also air defense principle instead of current principle air policing, uh, in order to, uh, to, to receive those additional uh, capabilities. We yes. have to improve our infrastructure, and uh, this costs some money, of course, and we are ready to provide this money for this purpose. You're talking about a larger deterrent effect. I want to ask you about Kaliningrad and what took place there, because you decided to adhere to EU sanctions and prevent the flow of sanctioned goods between Kaliningrad and, and mainland Russia. The Russians, of course, were furious, and I know passengers, people could still go go through and obviously Kaliningrad was still accessible via sea. But now the EU's turned around and said, OK, actually, sanction goods can pass. Do you see that as a, no, no. a weakening to your earlier point? No, no, <laughs> it was never the case that uh, uh, Lithuania blocked the movement of passengers, uh, movement of... But I'm, non asking, non I'm asking about the EU. The decision for the, from the EU to allow sanctioned goods to pass. Do you uh, see that as a weakening? Goods, uh, not the sanctioned goods. I would like to make it uh, more concrete. The transit uh, of some goods. The final uh, destination of this movement of these goods is Kaliningrad. So the goods are moving from one part of Russian Federation, the mainland of Russian Federation, to enclave uh, Kaliningrad region, uh, without any purpose to sell it in the third countries in order to generate uh, hard currency. So uh, yes, uh, we had, uh, we received the guidance uh, produced by European Commission, and according to this guidance, Yes, uh, in, with certain limits, it's possible that this transit from one part of Russian Federation is allowed to go to the second part, Kaliningrad region. I wouldn't call it, uh, re, uh, how to say, to make it that this decision made our policy, sanctions policy, weaker. Just uh, the, it was refined a little bit in order to explain some concrete deta details of movement of goods and services. So you don't see it as a softening on the part of the EU, because this was something that angered Russia. OK, but, uh, you know, uh, European Commission is responsible to say the common guidance, because this is not in the hands of concrete member states, if it would be the case then we would have 27 policies of implementation of sanctions. We have to have one policy on the implementation of sanctions, and of course European institutions and together all member sta states are responsible for setting of sanctions. And Lithuania is one of the um, most keen uh, supporters of top policy sanctions policy on Russia, and we welcome the seventh package of sanctions which we imposed recently. But I think even those seven packages are not enough in order to stop Russia. We need mm -hmm. more decisive actions, first of all, 
on uh, reducing uh, dependence from r Russian energy resources. And as you know, Lithuania is a leading country in this area because recently we stopped to buy any kind of energy, energy resources from Russia, including oil, including gas and including electricity. I saw. And you've been doing that since 2014, unlike other European nations, I know, and now are completely independent. Mr. President, fantastic yeah, to have you on the show. independent. And, you know, uh, in, in, in the spike of these recent uh, turbulences, uh, Russia wanted to punish us because of these transit issues. But uh, they recognized that some uh, measures they were planning to impose on us even uh, even more painful for them, not for us. And this is the reason why uh, Lithuania invested a lot, invested political will, invested money in order to become in a totally independent from Russian uh, energy policy, because we have a lot of experiences and examples that uh, this dependence was used just for manipulation and blackmailing. And now we see that Russia is uh, doing the same uh, to our uh, partners in European Union, especially Germany. I know. If only they'd have followed your example back in 2014 and beginning the process of uh, independence, then we would be in a very different position today. So thank you for your time. The Lithuanian president there, Gitanas Naseda. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. More First Move after the break. Stay with us. Back to first move and recapping one of our top stories today, the expected arrival of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan and the possible response from China to that trip. White House officials are worried about Beijing's reaction to such a high profile visit. CNN's chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju joins us now from Washington. Manu, I think one of the big questions a lot of people are asking is why now for someone who's been in Congress for, for 35 years? We know a great deal about her. She's what second in line to the presidency. Why now at such a contentious time? So Pelosi has long been a very China hawk, someone who has criticized the human rights record of China, someone who has uh, been long uh, critical about some of the actions by the country. And once the news leaked that she might have was considering a trip to Taiwan, she was in a bit of an untenable position because if she wore backed away from the plan of going to Taiwan, she would look like she was kowtowing to the regime in China. But if she went forward with it, she would be antagonizing this the, the Chinese leadership there, which is warning of retaliation if she does carry through with this. But it appears from what we are hearing that she is, in fact, going to Taiwan now to show uh, the U.S. commitments to uh, the island's uh, right to self-defense. And we do expect her, along with the congressional delegation, to arrive there uh, later today. But this all caps, as you mentioned, a long career in Congress, one of which this could potentially be her last full term in Congress, potentially her last term as Speaker of the House. And it, drop, dropping by Taiwan, the first U.S. House Speaker to go to the island in 25 years since Newt Gingrich, the Republican speaker, made a trip back uh, 25 years ago, uh, would be a cap for her capstone in a career in which she has gone after China for its human rights records. And no doubt will spotlight that when she's on the ground, which is expected later today.
I just wonder behind the scenes, Manu, as well, how much sympathy President Biden does have for her. He's got himself into various degrees of hot water defending Taiwan in some ways, deliberately or, or otherwise. So whether we talk about the president himself on a personal level or the executive branch and the White House, I just wonder whether there are differing views there and whether or not actually behind the scenes as well, the difference between this branch of Congress and the executive branch is being made clear to China. Yeah, that is one of the. Yeah, that is one of the big questions because China seems to view uh, what Congress was doing with what the executive branch is doing. Of course, as you mentioned, the, the Congress is a separate branch of government as the White House, but does it, it doesn't seem to matter much to the Chinese government. And one of the reasons why the Pelosi is going forward with this is she does not want to look like she is that China can dictate where a U.S. House Speaker can go and travel. But no doubt Biden has expressed sympathy for Taiwan, but at the same time has expressed concerns that this visit will only exacerbate tensions at a time when the U.S is pushing China to stay out of the Russia-Ukraine war, for instance, and a whole host of other geopolitical issues involving the U.S. and China that he does not want to exacerbate the tensions, which is why the White House initially was concerned about the possibility of this trip. But when it made clear that the speaker was going, they have shown support and said that China should not retaliate in any way for this visit. We'll see if the China leadership agrees. Yeah, no one wants to look weak at this moment, but as I've been asking all show, how does this help Taiwan ultimately? Yes, Manu Raju, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. Up next, any escalation in U.S.-China tensions? Bad news for trade, potentially. The head of the US, U.S.'s busiest port joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. A cautious tone on Wall Street today as investors await U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's expected arrival in Taiwan, a trip that China has strongly condemned. And a second day of losses for the United States, U.S. majors overall, but some positive earnings related action in early trading too. Uber shares higher by 13 percent as revenue numbers beat expectations. Double digit gains for social media giant Pinterest too after reporting positive user growth numbers. But blue chip firm Caterpillar under pressure after reporting a bit of sales softness as supply chain issues continue to weigh. Some much needed relief, though, for major manufacturers like Caterpillar may soon be coming. New data yesterday shows the prices that companies are paying for supplies are easing a bit as demand slows and supply chain bottlenecks improve. That said, mounting tensions between the United States and China could put fresh strain on those international chains. The port of Los Angeles is the top container port in the United States and the busiest in the Western Hemisphere. That makes it the most important gateway for international trade into the United States. It handles $250 billion worth of cargo every year, and more than 50 percent of that originates in China. Joining us now is Jean Siroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. Jean, always great to have you on the show. Those statistics say it all. I'm sure you can give me more accurate ones. How closely are you following the trip by Nancy Pelosi, potentially, let's say that, to Taiwan? Oh, we're following this very closely. And mm. it's a delicate needle to thread on the political side, social. And for us in business, as you rightly say, the majority of our imports come from China. And as we continue to focus on ramping up exports, that'll be a very, very key destination country for us. 
I remember you saying back in January 2022 um, to us that you, I think you had 109 uh, container ships queuing for more than two days to get into the, to the port. How many are waiting to dock today? Just give us a, a flavour of what we're seeing in terms of the reduction in some of those uh, blockages and challenges that you were facing back then. Julia, we've done tremendous work since that peak of 109 vessels back in January. We're down to 19 as of last night. And those ships are waiting less than two days to come in and begin their work. All of this while we're matching container for container with our all-time record year set just last in 2021. Here at the Midway Point, we continue to move a tremendous amount of cargo. What you would challenged by was not only the amount of cargo coming in and having space to contain it, but it was pushing that and those goods onwards, the transport links, the lorry drivers. To what extent has that eased in a a similar way or is it less so? As the cargo has come off the ships in record numbers, we've moved two thirds of our boxes out by truck on average. And we've got the lowest amount of aging cargo sitting at our port since we began measuring at the beginning of this surge. Now we're focused on rail cargo. While it's increased by sixfold since February, we've got to have our American importers picking up that cargo at locations like Chicago, Memphis, Dallas, so we could push out the next trains from here in Los Angeles. So does that mean that the costs of of doing this are coming down too, because broader measures in the United States now of transport costs are coming down. And we're clearly seeing that with energy prices as well, to some degree. Gene, what impact is this having on, on things like freight costs? That fluidity means that there are less touches to a container, less extra handling costs. So we're trying to do our part, our level best to remove any waste from the system and increase efficiencies. Having an impact on this is a key driver for what we do here. Part of what drove the growth slowdown in the first quarter in the United States, though, was it was inventory building. Um, what's your sense heading particularly into the third and fourth quarter as we head towards the holiday season? Inventory levels are people because they're not going to be in the same position that they were this time last year where they were struggling to get the goods in. Do you still expect a, a sort of ramp up in imports into the, to the port of Los Angeles or do you expect it to be pretty steady? What's your sort of forecast and outlook? The cargo that's coming in the weeks and months ahead looks different than what's on the ground right now. We've got seasonal goods like back to school, Halloween and fall fashion on the way, in addition to the all important year end retail holidays. And while some retailers have gone out and stated that their inventories are higher than they would like and they may be discounting goods, with the exception of a few commodities, we see a pretty steady run for the back half of the year. Now, not everyone is going to buy appliances, kitchen bathroom fixtures, and main furniture purchases every single year. So as those inventory levels start to steady, we'll see that business taper a little bit, but imports in general will remain strong. You know, the theme of this show actually has been the the risk of retaliation for certain behaviors, and your sheer scale makes you a target on the world stage, particularly at times where where trade is so vitally important and the economy is softening. I saw a statistic that said that your port faces up to 40 million cyber attacks on a monthly basis. And you're now working with the FBI to ensure that you have the structures in place to defend that. Gene, what can you tell us about what you're dealing with in addition to the challenges of just running the core business, some of the outside threats that you face too? 
this is a big part of supply chain resilience, Julia, mm-hmm. you're correct. We are stopping 40 million cyber intrusion attempts per month. That's twice as much as pre-COVID. Back in September of 2014, we set up the nation's first cybersecurity operations center at a port, and it follows the FBI's neighborhood cyberhood watch framework. That has been so strong that just last December, co-created with IBM, we implemented one of the world's first cyber resilience centers to bring our private sector partners together, all done under a cloak of anonymity to make sure we digitize and share cyber threats quickly so our private sector companies can be on the watch. Quickly, Jean, because I have about 30 seconds. Do you know where they're emanating from? Uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, Mm. nation states that are familiar with this activity. We see all of this, not only coming here to Los Angeles, but throughout the world, heightening our level of protection and information sharing. Jean, brilliant to chat to you, as always. Thank you so much. Jean Soroka there, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. Uh, Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Ukraine says a mandatory evacuation of the Donetsk region is now underway, beginning with women, children and the elderly. It comes as Russian forces continue their offensive. The head of the Donetsk Regional Military Administration says trains will depart every two days. Volunteers from World Central Kitchen provided people on the first evacuation train with food. A lawyer for American basketball star Brittany Griner says she's, quote, focused and nervous after the seventh hearing in her trial ended earlier today without a verdict. She's expected back in court on August the 4th. It comes as the U.S. attempts to negotiate a prisoner swap for her release. Griner was arrested in a Moscow airport in February for having cannabis oil in her luggage. In the United States, uh, states of Kentucky, at least 37 people have lost their lives after floods swamped the state. Rescue workers are airlifting people to safety, but efforts have been hampered by ongoing rain in some areas. Officials are forecasting dry conditions over the next few days, which could offer some relief. And up next, BP stands for big profits today. The oil giant sees its best quarter in 14 years as prices spike. We've got all the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Profits at BP hit a 14-year high last quarter as the war in Ukraine drove up energy prices. The oil giant says it expects prices to stay high. It boosted its dividend and says it plans to increase spending on new oil and gas projects. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Plenty that's consensus, if necessary, about that too. Walk us through the numbers first. Yeah, Julia, BP joining its rival energy companies in a absolutely blockbuster quarter as energy prices rose, of course, due to the disruption uh, from Russia during the Ukraine war. The number was about $8.5 billion. Uh, that's underlying replacement profits, the most closely watched indicator uh, from BP. That is more than triple the number we saw in the second quarter last year and way in excess uh, of estimates. They say that it was driven uh, by, by huge margins in terms of refining. Uh, refining capacity, as we know, is, is very much sort of at a shortage worldwide. So that probably contributed to that. Also, they call it an exceptional quarter when it comes to trading. So revenue they get from actually trading in commodities. So, so that was part of the drivers there. But this is going to be, Julia, and this is crucial, a payday for shareholders. It has increased its dividend by 10%, and BP is also launching another round of share buybacks of $3.5 billion 
in the next quarter, in the third quarter. That's on top of more than $4 billion that they've already done so far this year. So that sort of adds fuel to the already heated debate that we're seeing around these bumper profits from energy companies. Because, of course, here in the UK, uh, you know, energy consumers are facing a, an historic cost of living crisis. And energy bills are set to go up again significantly this autumn. And we're seeing some pretty strongly worded reactions to this. Take a look at what Greenpeace UK has tweeted. They're saying... There's something particularly obscene and cruel about gas companies like Shell and BP making record profits while consumers are going to struggle to keep warm this winter. It's way past time, they say, to implement a proper windfall tax on big oil and save the planet. Now, the UK government has already put a 25% windfall tax on the profits of energy companies. That's just about starting to kick in, but critics are saying they need to do more. And one more tweet, Julia, from the General Secretary of the Unite Union, one of the biggest trade unions here in the UK. She's saying uh, that all of this is happening while household energy bills are rising to a calamitous 3,600 a year. She finishes by saying Britain's real crisis isn't rising prices. It's an epidemic of unfettered profiteering. So big profits, but also a political problem for BP. Yeah, fuel to the fire. I was just quickly doing the maths on this for ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell and BP. I make that $50 billion of profits between the four of them. Yes, fuel to the fire. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, now staying with petrol heads, did you know the late Princess Diana drove a Ford Escort? Yes, apparently she did. The car, which was specifically built for the Princess of Wales, is about to be sold at auction. It was registered in 1985 and has done less than 25,000 miles. The model is believed to be one of a handful painted black. Ford's PR department at the time suggested making the car black for Princess Di when Escort turbos were white at the time. And finally, what could be the most expensive McDonald's breakfast in the world? A passenger arriving in Australia from Bali has been fined nearly $1,900 for bringing in this. Two undeclared egg and beef sausage muffins and a ham croissant. It was discovered in the traveller's luggage at Darwin Airport by a drug-detected dog called Zinta. Australia has notoriously tough biosecurity measures in place. And that breakfast cost twice the price of the airfare from Bali. Also, it's worth noting there are nearly a thousand McDonald's branches in Australia. I asked to check that. So they're not exactly hard to find. And I tell you what, they're best eaten at the time. That does not look very appetising. Ouch. All round. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.